This episode is sponsored by Airbnb. The focus of season three is all about how art and creativity can be used to bring about social change, combating racism, discrimination, and ultimately finding beauty through justice. Airbnb's mission is to help create a world where people can belong anywhere, and they wanted to support these conversations. And throughout the season, I'll be featuring some of their actions in this space. So stay tuned for that. Okay, let's start the show. So, a musician, songwriter, producer, and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other, if we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. To say that we need to... (laughs) redress the imbalance of popular perceptions of these histories by foregrounding slaveholding in the defense of slavery is not an attempt to, to, you know, to run down Britain or to hate Britain, which I've been accused of by doing. Um, for one thing, it's just because it's true. I mean, the role of historians should be to bring to light historical truths. Uh, and, you know, maybe, maybe that's a bit naively absolute uh, in in, in approaching the subject, but what else is the point of it? You know, this is all relatively new material and a story that hasn't been told before. Um, and recognizing it as fact, and recognizing Britain's complicity in this, um, you, know, you know, arguably one of the, the struggling with many greater atrocities uh, in history, um, would just go a long way to restoring a bit of credibility in the way that Britons of the present day address their past. It cannot just be a celebration. Uh, there has to be a recognition uh, of, of what really happened. I'm delighted to bring to you part two of our three-part series on race, class and education in the UK. This week, we're joined by historian Dr Michael Taylor, author of what I'm calling Required Reading and shortlisted for the Orwell Prize for Political Writing in 2021. The Interest, How the British Establishment Resisted the Abolition of Slavery. The British slave trade was abolished in 1807, but slavery wasn't abolished until 1833 with the Slavery Abolition Act. Michael's book talks in rigorous and fascinating detail about that interim period. In fact, let me read an excerpt from his book to give you more context. When Parliament abolished the British slave trade in 1807, it did not abolish colonial slavery, and when the last slave ship dropped anchor, More than 700,000 people remained in bondage in the British Caribbean. For these men, women and children, the abolition of the trade made no difference whatsoever to their lives. 
They were still enslaved, and abolition did nothing to diminish the pain, cruelty and violence that British slaveholders continued to inflict upon them. In fact, the campaign to abolish colonial slavery did not even begin for another 16 years until, on a cold London night in January 1823, a few dozen committed radicals founded the Anti-Slavery Society. In the meantime, much of Latin America, the northern US states and the free black republic of Haiti had already abolished slavery on their own terms. The idea that Britain was first to do so is bogus nonsense. Michael Taylor is a historian of the British Empire and the British Isles in the 18th and 19th centuries. He graduated with a double first in history from the University of Cambridge, where he earned his PhD, and also won British TV show University Challenge. He has since been lecturer in modern British history at Balliol College, Oxford, and a visiting fellow at the British Library's Eccles Centre for American Studies. We talk about the political landscape of Britain in the 1810s and 20s, how the split within the Tory party and Catholic emancipation in Ireland were key contributing factors to abolition. And this, I think, is what I hope is the most, one of the most important points of the book, is that um, we, ab we abolished the slave trade in 1807, but there's another 26 years before we legislate for the abolition of slavery. Um, those are 26 years that we kind of forget about and we're... When I say we, I mean the general public or you know, British opinion about slavery. Um, we attribute everything to what Wilberforce achieves in the 1800s and pretty much forget the next 26 years or just regard it as a coda. But there was absolutely nothing about the abolition, uh, absolutely nothing inevitable about the abolition of slavery. Um, it probably would have happened eventually, but there was certainly nothing inevitable about it happening in the 1830s. And wh why it does happen, it comes down to contingency and chance uh, and personal missteps by Tory politicians. We talk reparations. Reparations not as financial recompense for slave labour, because that would literally be impossible to quantify and impossible to pay back, but actually reparations as a form of restorative justice. I'm not sure there are legal grounds or there, there's a strong legal case um, for reparations from the British government to the descendants of enslaved people or to Caribbean countries, simply because everything was legal at the time. Um, but there is an, I, what I, I think, an unarguable moral imperative uh, to make amends for what was done, because um, what, what, what the Caribbean Commission has done has drawn uh, quite a persuasive um, connection of cause and effect between what happened to the West Indian colonies and what happened to the people who were trafficked there uh, and who lived there um, and the current problems faced by that region. Um, and so, for example, there is one of the highest incidences of type 2 diabetes in the world in the West Indies. Is that an effect of having a diet in which sugarcane was one of the staple crops for 200 years? It wasn't until 2015 that the UK Treasury finished paying off the loan it raised in 1835 to recompense slaveholders. To put it into context, the British government at the time spent 40% of its budget, that's £20 million, which in today's money, when Michael was writing the book, amounted to about £340 billion. And to really understand what this means for us now, the British taxpayer, and particularly black Britons of Caribbean descent, have in essence, I quote, 
It was not lost on several readers that the British government had effectively invited black Britons to celebrate paying taxes to compensate those who enslaved their ancestors. We talk about the role of theology and how it framed both pro-slavery and abolitionist narratives. We talk about the interconnectedness and muddiness of these historical abolitionist figures, that a person could be an abolitionist and a racist at the same time. We talk about whether or not to remove statues of slaveholders. And so I had been of the opinion that statues of slaveholders or people who were deeply implicated in the defence of slavery should remain in place and that their names should remain on buildings because um, I thought that by keeping those names and those statues in place, uh, they would serve as a reminder uh, of the truth or you know, a, you know, a form of representation of what happened in British history. Um, but whenever Edward Colston's statue was dumped rather poetically into the same, you know, the harbour from which his slave ships once set sail, uh, the right-wing media in Britain really exploded uh, in a frenzy of you know, frothy fury about uh, what had gone on. It did really bring home to me that there just simply isn't the ground base level of knowledge about the British Empire. Um, these aspects of British imperialism are not necessarily in curricular. Um, and this maybe brings us back to what we said at the start. I mean, I've always been slightly hesitant about decolonizing the curriculum, uh, or, or at least the phrase. What might end up, you know, effect, I might actually be advocating for it <laughs> without knowing it. And we still make time to talk about music. Michael Taylor, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. You're very welcome. Thank you for, for having me on your show. Yeah, I should um, say uh, to the listeners that, um, you know, social media is a great thing. I literally, I got, I don't know, I read a review of your book in the Financial Times weekend. I got the book and I was raving about the book and I thought, hmm, I'm just going to message this person on twi Twitter and see if he will say yes, and you did. So it's been, this is a very, very pleasant surprise for me. So thank you so and, and much. And for me, I mean, there, there are many reasons why social media can be a very bad thing. Uh, but happily, this is one of the good ones. <laughs> so for those that don't know you, you're an historian of colonial slavery, um, the British Empire and the British Isles. You um, graduated from Cambridge. You won University Challenge, which I'm always impressed by because I don't think I've ever been able to answer one question right on University Challenge. To be honest, I've forgotten almost everything that might have given me an answer. Um, it, was, it was a long time ago. <laughs> Well, well, well done, nevertheless. But you've also written this fantastic book called The Interest, The British Establishment, um, How the British Establishment Resisted the Abolition of Slavery. And I keep saying to, I've been raving about it to everyone, and I really, I am calling it required reading. Um, I know that we're, you know, people are talking about decolonising the education system, and this needs to be on the curriculum. It just, it just does. Um, that's very kind of you to say so. Um, I, I'm not sure whether, I'm not always sure that I agree with everything that decolonizing the curriculum might entail. Um, mm -hmm. And that's purely because it, it is quite an amorphous term and it seems to mean different things to a lot of different people. Um, 
What I've tried to do with this book, I think, is to integrate domestic political histories with histories of the colonies and of slavery, because traditionally they have been studied very separately. Um, mm. And by what, inserting the history of slavery into a traditional domestic political narrative, uh, I've, I've hoped to bridge that gap. Now, that may amount to decolonizing the curriculum. I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, but certainly I think that these kinds of extra European histories and the relationship of you know, the centre of the British Empire to those colonies um, needs to be addressed a lot more urgently than it has been traditionally. Absolutely. So perhaps we can start by saying, you know, why the book? Why focus on the British establishment and say not the stories of enslaved people who who sought their own uh, liberation? Start with, you know, why? Well, um, This requires going right the way back to the start of my PhD, which was intended uh, to be a a relatively narrow intellectual history of the relationship between slavery and theology, and in particular, uh, biblical justifications for slavery. But whenever I started that Mm. research, it became quite clear that there was, in fact, uh, a much wider story to tell about how and why uh, Britons of the late 18th and early 19th century wanted to defend and to preserve slavery. Uh, and there was an awful lot of material that historians had either ignored or not discovered before, uh, and therefore a, a new narrative uh, that was ready to be told. Um, now, that's that, that's not to say that um, a, a book focusing on the same time period, which focused on uh, the stories and the biography of the enslaved, wouldn't be equally important. Uh, but there has been more written about that than there had been about this. Um, it's right. simply the fact that I got to write this book because I'd done the research on um, how British politicians and intellectuals and journalists were responding to and acting towards slavery. Um, I've tried mm-hmm. where, where I can to integrate um, you know, biographies and the narrative of the enslaved in, in the colonies, and uh, it's absolutely impossible to tell this story properly without doing so. Um, but it, this this book was simply a product of the research that I did, uh, and it coincided with a gap in the literature. I mean, I, this is, I think, the first um, book which really tells the narrative of those 10 years between the establishment of the Anti-Slavery Society and the passage of the Slavery Abolition Act between 1823 and 33. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. And I think what... You know, this book is so dense and I'm aware of the time. So I've been really thinking, how can we how can we sort of delve into the key themes, especially for those people who haven't read it, um, to sort of draw them into reading it? And I suppose, you know, I've thought about the fact, you know, the the abolition of the slave trade happened in 1807. Mm -hmm. But we know that there were um, over 700,000 still enslaved people in the colonies. And then you have this period between 1807 and 1833 when the Slavery Slavery Abolition Act was enacted. And so we're sort of looking at that sort of couple of decades. And you have what I've called three main protagonists, if you like. Um, You've got the interest in Britain. Mm -hmm. You've got the West Indians, which aren't... Caribbean's people as we would know it, but we're talking about the colonists, the planters. And then you have the abolitionists. So, um, and those are the people, people would know them, Wilberforce and Buxton and Macaulay, those people, Clarkson Mm -hmm. and so on. So I thought, let, let us start by looking at these three entities and how they sort of work together. So perhaps let's talk about uh, the interest first, you know, what, who are they and, and what were they doing? Well, 
It, it, it's worth saying that the political landscape in the early 19th century in Britain is nothing like what it is today, where we have fairly sharply defined political parties. And anybody who's interested in politics is probably a member or at least sympathetic towards one of those parties. Um, in the 1810s and 20s, that's just not the case. There aren't formal political parties. There um, are Whigs and there are Tories, but these are loose coalitions of people with broadly similar interests. The Whigs are the relatively liberal, but not they're not liberals, they're not radicals. Um, the relatively liberal party who are interested in uh of freedom of religion, uh, free trade, uh, industry and commerce. Uh, the Tories are broadly established church Anglicans uh, and are sympathetic towards the landed interest. Um, mm-hmm. But because these parties are so loosely defined, uh, it's actually more informative, I think, to look at interests and connections as the defining political units of the age. Uh, so connections are politically interested people who are united or led by a single political grandee. So George Canning, who plays a major role in this book, uh, has Canningites. Robert Peel then has Peelites. Um, right. Interests, however, are groups of politically interested people who are united by specific anxiety. Like the landed interest uh, are the agricultural landowners who are incredibly interested in keeping the price of corn high uh, and in maintaining protective yes. tariffs on foreign grain, foreign corn. Um, the West India interest is the uh, relatively diverse group of politically interested people uh, who want to preserve and defend the West Indian colonies for reasons of commerce, for the economy, for strategic and imperial concerns. Um, and they can encompass uh, they can encompass Tories, Whigs, uh, publishers, journalists, intellectuals, clergymen, judges, sailors, soldiers. It's really quite hard to say this is the interest. Um, the closest that we can get uh, are probably the West India associations uh, of planters and merchants in Liverpool, Bristol, Glasgow, lots of other smaller ones in the UK, uh, and particularly the London Society of West India Planters and Merchants, which is often used as a shorthand, and I, and I use it as a shorthand for the interest. Um, yeah. it's, also, it's also worth saying that um, the white colonists that you identify as one of the second groups of protagonists mm. uh, are also part of the interest. Um, it's just that yeah. they often have radically different views on how to address and to uh, attack abolitionists. Um, they are very much treated as the poor colonial cousins of the grandees who have their plush houses in Piccadilly. Yes. So let's just sort of um, talk about then the abolitionists because you um, and how this started. I think we had the Anti-Slavery Society that was set up in the 1820s. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very interesting for me to read. This is a bit of a side note, but I've been contemplating this idea that two ideas can be true at the same time. So you have somebody like Wilberforce that wanted abolition, but he was also a racist. Yes. Which, yeah. yeah. And so I, I, I just want to quickly read something that you wrote or that you quoted that Wilberforce said. This was um, at the time of the abolition of the slave trade. Mm-hmm. And he says... Uh, Wilberforce had denied any intention to free the enslaved in the racist and patronising language that characterised so much abolitionist rhetoric. He told Parliament that, quote, before the slaves could be fit to receive freedom, it would be madness to attempt to give it to them. Um, I should say I found your book wonderful and maddening and frustrating and um, upsetting. And it took me longer to read than normal because so many things in here I had to stop and think about, you know, but I think it's important, you know, when we talk about 
books like yours that history isn't linear um, and it isn't singular either. And so multiple things can be true at the same time. And so when we're talking about Wilberforce and Macaulay and a, a lot of these abolitionists, there is still a sense of, and I think you even speak to, about it towards the end of your book, this idea that that everyone is coming to liberate these poor Africans who have no agency. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about the abolition, abolitionists anyway and, and where they're coming from and what their, what their agenda okay, well, is. It's worth maybe then starting with that quote from Wilberforce, which is from 1805 or six, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yes. So the abol- it, part of it might have been political posturing because the abolitionists, although they always had an end goal of emancipating the enslaved entirely, had no intention of pursuing it in the early 1800s. Um, Right. One possible reason is that they thought it would simply have been too much and politically impossible to achieve, um, even with the relatively liberal Ministry of All the Talents at the time. Um, the second is something to do with property. It's quite easy or relatively easy to prohibit the pursuit of an economic practice such as slave trading. But if you go after legally held property, which uh, enslaved people were regarded as, um, yeah. not just popularly, but you know, by the courts at the time, there was something. There was some. There was an unease among the abolitionists about doing that, um, because there were there were immediate and frequent comparisons between um, farmers in Yorkshire or Lincolnshire and plantation owners uh, in the Caribbean, and there was the argument quite frequently put forward. Well. It, we are of the same kin. Um, you know, we are mm. British landowners. We hold property um, and we exploit that property to produce crops. Um, mm. And for that reason, the abolitionists were hesitant about going after such legally held property at the time. Um, you're quite right, however, to say that they are they are racist. They've got absolutely no interest in racial equality. Um, it's also mm. worth po- pointing out that nobody used the terms racist or racism at the time. These It would be anachronistic to yeah. say so, although everybody did talk about different races of man. Uh, but the prevailing mm-hmm. sort of biological, anthropological thinking at the time held that um, while all of the different races of men were human and part of the same species, that there was a, there was an obvious hierarchy, they thought. And inevitably, they put white Europeans at the top uh, and they put black Africans at the bottom. And the abolitionists conceived it as their civilizing mission um, to civilize the uncivilized, uh, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. raise uh, the uncivilized out of what they regarded as savagery and barbarism. Um, of course, the planters thought they were doing this as well. Um, the West Indian slaveholders yeah. thought that by enslaving um, Africans and by tutoring them in the arts of pastoral farming, sorry, arable farming, um, that was uh, raising them out of the same perceived savagery and barbarism. Um, but what, and in terms of holding two ideas uh, in your head at the same time, it, it, it's worth explaining this apparent this apparent dissonance in between what the abolitionists want to do and what they think um, by reference to their theology. Um, and it's all part of the evangelical theology, which one of my great mentors, Boyd Hilton at Cambridge, has done a lot to illuminate, uh, which is that they believe in two absolute kinds of freedom. Uh, one right. is personal freedom. Uh, they believe that mm. sin, uh, slavery is in itself sinful uh, and that yeah. in order uh, to live one's life, as God sees fit for you to live it, you must have personal freedom. Uh, the second thing is spiritual freedom and that everybody who is 
once they are freed personally, must be free to hear the word of God and to react to the word of God as they wish to. Whatever happens thereafter is apparently the manifestation of the divine will. So in a free market economy with free labor, if a man succeeds, that is God's will. If a man fails and dies, that is also God's will. Um, And that's basically their attitude towards slavery. You know, let's get rid of this incredibly sinful and evil institution. But thereafter, we've got absolutely no interest uh, in any kinds of social welfare or social equality, uh, because it is God's will um, that will separate men and uh, a lot to them uh, different degrees of, of success in life. This is so interesting, and you you actually have a very very maddeningly, maddeningly but <laughs> interesting chapter called uh, De- "Deliver Us from Evil," and it's all about how um, aboli- abolitionists on one end, West Indians, the interest on the other end, are using the Bible to to justify and explain their own ends. Um, it, it's interesting because it you know this whole period, you have different tools to justify slavery, right? So the trade has ended, but they need slavery to keep going. Mm. So they're like, well, we'll underpin our political agenda with biblical truths. I say truths in inverted commas because it seems to suit whatever narrative was was around. But I'd love you to delve into that a little bit because I found it really, really fascinating. And even um, people like Samuel Sharp, who was an enslaved man, he he became, I think he was a Baptist minister, wasn't he? And so he... Yeah, so he was a deacon at the Baptist mission. Yeah, yeah. That's it. And so he was also using the Bible to, to justify his right and 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 other you know rebels right for their own liberation i'd love for you to sort of delve into that a little bit about the different narratives depending on which group you identified with perhaps start with the you've you've mentioned the abolitionists let's look at the interest sure well i, I before i do that there are probably two po- quite important um contextual factors one is that um this is an incredibly religious society um, it's, mm. it, it would, it's entirely wrong to think that everybody, uh, was imbibing enlightened secularism at this time. Uh, nobody's really reading the, the continental, uh, biblical criticism until the 1830s and 40s. Um, Britain in the 1810s and 20s is, uh, is a very Christian place. And therefore, um, any political argument that you can support, uh, with scripture carries greater weight. Um, the second is that it is almost inevitable that because the Bible is a collection of books written by many different authors over several thousands of years and then codified at a later date, that you will be able to find whatever you want within it uh, to justify whichever political yeah. agenda you wish to pursue. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's slightly easier, I think, for the interest to find uh, verses and chapters which condone and endorse slaveholding than it is uh, for the abolitionists um, to find uh, some sort of exegesis for their own agenda. And that's simply because there are many more verses in the Bible which appear to endorse slavery. Um, 
a lot of the abolitionist uh, citation of the Bible is metaphorical or allegorical. Uh, and so you have people like Samuel Sharp uh, or Quamina in Demerara in 1823 um, citing the example of the Israelites being delivered from freedom, uh, not only from the Egyptians, but later from the Babylonians as well. Uh, or you have them uh, applying the golden rule to their own situation. But conversely, you have the interest seeing uh God punishing Noah or, or sorry, punishing Ham, um, with yeah. the curse of Ham. You know, you, the descendants of your descendants shall be servants unto servants, uh, and all the regulations mm-hmm. of slavery that follow in the, the, the Levitical texts. Um, and then the examples of uh, the, the Israelites themselves being enslaved. And they argue, well, if God's own chosen people can be enslaved, how can it be, uh, an unfit punishment, so to speak, uh, for people who are not Israelites. Um, then they look for uh, the evidence or the absence of any evidence that Christ and the apostles um, find slavery to be inimical uh, to true Christianity. And this is, this is also true. There is nothing said by Christ or by uh, Paul, which would suggest that slavery was uh, completely incompatible with Christianity. Uh, in fact, they pointed to a lot of biblical uh, verses where Paul says, you know, servants, be content under your masters. You will receive uh, spiritual freedom whenever you arrive in heaven uh, and just be content with your situation as it is. Uh, what they, they really like the book of Philemon where... Um, uh, the slave uh, Onesimus runs away to Rome, uh, finds Paul, and you'd think at this stage that uh, he would say to Onesimus, well, you know, you're free now, I'll convert you to Christianity, go and enjoy your life. In fact, he recommends that he returns to his master Philemon at, Co- at Corinth and returns to slavery. Um, and for these high church Anglicans who place so much emphasis on the word of God, this to them is uh, proof that slavery is uh, morally justifiable. Uh, of course, some of them are using it merely to justify them. You know, they're using it as a means to the end. But I, I think it's undeniable that certain pro-slavery figures, for example, George Wilson Bridges, who's just such a, a repugnant figure um, and the most parodically, ferociously conservative churchman, really believes this. Mm. Yeah, it, it's 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 very... Very interesting. I, I think it's interesting for me because I am a Christian. And so reading this stuff and understanding, and, and I also come from a background where, you know, apartheid South Africa also used the sons of mm-hmm. Ham and that whole thing and that they reckoned that Ham was a Kushite, was a black person, et cetera, et cetera. But I, 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 I really think that one can use anything to justify an ideology if you look hard enough, you know? But sorry, you were going to no, say. No, I, I, I was just going to agree. I mean, there is there is definitely a sense throughout all of this of um, exploiting uh, a source which has prime intellectual, moral, and political authority to serve um, a rather nasty political goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we also have, you know, we're using religion, but there's also I want to talk a little bit about the propaganda through periodicals. Um, I would say our modern version of that is social media. Um, I'll let you respond. But I, what I find very, very interesting reading this book is that a lot of the mechanisms that were in place then we still use in a sophist- more sophisticated way. But it's algorithms that create echo chambers. It's just very, very interesting. But I'd like you to perhaps yeah, talk a little bit about these periodicals and how they're pushing pro-slavery propaganda and distorting 
um, information and distorting truth. Oh, the slaves actually, they're having, they actually really are treated very well. And then people draw these lovely pictures of slaves serving their masters at nice dinner tables on a Sunday. But yeah. It's really tempting to make comparisons to the present day. But I think that the role and the influence of these periodicals in shaping informed political opinion in the 1820s and 1830s is is unique really in the in the annals of british history because we have a very small electorate um, before 1832 it doesn't really grow that much after 1832 but I think it's fair to say that anybody who is eligible to vote is probably reading this. Um, you know, it is the prime means of putting propaganda out there. Um, so you have uh, on one side, uh, which maybe this is where there is a justifiable comparison to the press today, a raft of right-wing conservative periodicals, which are really dominant in terms of um, shaping the public sphere. So Blackwood's Edinburgh Magazine, the Quarterly Review, the Gentleman's Magazine, later The Spectator, uh, a little bit later Fraser's Magazine. Um, the West Indian interest can rely upon these publications. Uh, and, you know, they, they curry favours with them. They've got, uh, you know, they, they place people on the editorial boards. They, uh, you know, they're paying them to put articles in there. Uh, a lot of the journalists who are writing for them are, are also, uh, if they're not, if slaveholders or slave merchants themselves, um, are involved in the wider West India interest. Um, and all of this is financed with uh, a pro-slavery rent, which the West India interest imposes upon uh, any imports from the colonies uh, into the UK. And on the other side, there are only a few really reliable uh, abolitionist supporters in the press. One of them is the Edinburgh Review. Uh, The other, uh, which is less influential, is the West and slightly more radical of the Westminster Review. So it is really very, very difficult to win, um, you know, the paper war for the abolitionists. They're they're, they're just outnumbered. Um, What they do strike upon uh, as a couple of really influential means of uh, shaping public opinion uh, really comes down to a schism in the in the abolitionists among the abolitionists in 1830-31, where uh, you know the new boys really are just so frustrated with the patrician uh, on the, the glacial pace uh, that the patrician leaders of the abolitionist society. Um, uh, have adopted and they split off and form their own agency society Uh, and there are two mechanisms which I I think are really important one is uh, sending out lecturers into the provinces uh, stopping at every town stopping at every village um, speaking directly to people who are most likely to be enfranchised by any reform of parliament Uh, and what this means is that um, whenever we get to 1832 and tens of thousands more people are eligible to vote um, the, almost the major issue in the first reformed election in 1832-33 is slavery because uh, the abolitionists have been so successful at putting the issue before these people. Uh, the pro-slavery uh, lobby tries to respond by sending their own lecturers out into the field, chasing the abolitionists all around the country, but they fail first because they, the arguments, well, for one thing, the arguments aren't as strong. Um, and the second thing, they, they just don't have the same kind of uh, organization uh, or the same kind of enthusiasm. These are people simply taking the money uh, to go and do the job rather than people who really believe in what they're doing. Um, the second means, uh, and it's not necessarily uh, as influential, but is I'll write briefly about a placard war, um, basically political graffiti, mm-hmm. uh, which is put up on the streets of London. Right. Um and while the people reading that graffiti aren't necessarily the people who are going to be voting in any reformed election, it does create a groundswell of positive enthusiasm uh, 
um, for abolition. Mm-hmm. And maybe that is the equivalent of social media. I mean, it, you know, comparisons are often odious mm-hmm. and they're difficult, but um, yeah, yeah. in the end, the abolitionists win the propaganda war, but for a long time they were losing it. It'd, it'd be interesting, interesting, based on what you've just said, to sort of talk about how the abolition of slavery comes to pass, this sort of internal wranglings within the Tory party, this whole thing about the Catholic question and and all of that. So talk us through how we get to 1833 and the passing of sure. the I Sure. And this, I think, is what I hope is the most one of the most important points of the book, is that um, we, ab- we abolished the slave trade in 1807, but there's another 26 years before we legislate for the abolition of slavery. Um, those are 26 years that we kind of forget about. And we're, when I say we, I mean the general public or you know, British opinion about slavery. Um, we attribute everything to what Wilberforce achieves in the 1800s and pretty much forget the next 26 years or just regard it as a coda. But there was absolutely nothing about the abolition, uh, absolutely nothing inevitable about the abolition of slavery. Um, it probably would have happened eventually, but there were certainly nothing inevitable about it happening in the 1830s. And wh- why it does happen, it comes down to contingency and chance uh, and personal missteps by Tory politicians. Uh, so in a- 1827, everything is looking terrible for the abolitionists. The Tories have a massive majority in Parliament. And so long as Lord Liverpool is alive and in charge and managing the big beasts in the Tory cabinet, there just really isn't an opening. February 1827, he has a stroke. Uh, he resigns two months later, dies the next year. He's replaced by George Canning, who is mm-hmm. an incredibly clever, gifted politician, but has so many enemies, even within his own party, that he really struggles uh, to form a coherent government. He also dies four months later. So whenever uh, whenever Canning dies, uh, the king appoints Viscount Goodrich, who is so incompetent uh, he, he he ends up redeeming, redeeming himself significantly by acting as a, an abolitionist colonial circuit under the Whigs in the 1830s. Uh, but he in the in, in 1827-28, he can't form a cabinet. He never sees Parliament meet. He resigns in January 1828. So the king, you know, he's, he's about to appoint his fourth prime minister in the space of you know eight nine months. Um, he mm. goes to the Duke of Wellington. No, I you know, basically I need a soldier to form a cabinet and just do a job. Wellington is ardently conservative, arguably the most pro-slavery politician of the age. Um, And again, the abolitionists look at the political landscape in 1828 and think, right, we've just got no chance here. Um, What happens is that in April 1828, Daniel O'Connell, who is this wonderfully radical uh, and incredibly significant figure in Irish history, stands for election in Clare, in the county of Clare, and beats uh, the Tory candidate. So... The problem is that O'Connell can't take his seat because he's Catholic. Catholics are not allowed to hold public office in the UK. They can vote, they can stand for election, they can't take public office. So there is now the chance that if O'Connell is not allowed to take his seat, um, that the issue of Catholic emancipation becomes so violent that civil war could break out in Ireland. By the next year, in 1829, Wellington and Home Secretary Robert Peel eventually agree to, to legislate for Catholic emancipation because Wellington does not want to fight a civil war in Ireland. The king eventually accedes to this, but what this does uh, when Catholic emancipation passes and O'Connell eventually takes a seat is that it splits the Tory party in two. So this seemingly impregnable 
political force is now split between liberal Tories, uh, who would have followed uh, Canning, uh, or William Huskisson, who also appears quite a lot in the book. Um, what you yes. might describe as high Tories following Wellington and Peel, uh, and the ultra Tories, who are the diehard conservatives who simply cannot abide any idea uh, relating to Catholic emancipation. Yeah. <laughs> Wellington then in 1830 has another catastrophic political misstep. Whenever there's an election and the death of the king, uh, he just about succeeds in holding together uh, a government. But within two weeks of uh, returning to Parliament in November 1830, um, he declaims against any reform of Parliament, any electoral reform, any enfranchisement beyond who you know the, the people who are already eligible to vote, um, mm. and basically kills his own government. He loses um, a fairly insignificant vote, but he realises that the writing's on the wall. He resigns and the Whigs have to be appointed because the Tories are so um, disparate, um, sort of fissiparous is a word I keep seeing a lot about <laughs> European politics in the minute. Uh, but they are that. They, they can't form a government. The Whigs come in and this is the abolitionist chance. The Whigs, as I said a little bit before, they're not radical, they're not liberal, but the abolitionists mm. do have a better chance of some kind of political progress under they do. Um, of course, the Whigs prioritise electoral reform, the reform of parliament, because that is what that's what they want to do. That's almost their raison d'etre by this stage. But when they do that, and when suddenly the, the enfranchised voters have, who have been worked on by the abolitionists over the, the, the previous years, yeah. then it all become, be, begins to fall into place in 1833. But you're absolutely right what you say, that if the Tories don't fall apart over mm. Catholic emancipation, like mm. when do the Whigs get in? The Whigs haven't been in power for generations. Um, yeah. And the abolitionists, have, they have no chance under the Tories. Um, so it is mm. this Tory civil war which brings about the circumstances in which abolition can finally be achieved. If you're a person of colour, it's very likely that you or someone you know will be able to share stories of not being able to rent or buy property because of how you look or because of your name. My name is Matsudiso. It's a South African name and it really should be pronounced Matsidiso. But, well... I was raised in London and this is my accent, so I say Matsudiso. Sometimes people think my name is Japanese and then they see my face and I see their faces trying to compute what they imagined against what they actually see. Those of us in the UK may remember the phrase landlords had in their windows in the 50s and 60s, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. And you may think times have changed. We have anti-discrimination laws, progress has been made. But governments can only go so far to legislate against people's racist or discriminatory mindsets. And so, what does a consumer-led tech company like Airbnb do when people of colour report racial discrimination? Well, after an audit conducted by civil rights lawyer Laura Murphy, and after working with a number of consultants and stakeholders, Airbnb set up Project Lighthouse. In partnership with Colour of Change, the United States' largest online racial justice organisation with millions of members and with guidance from civil rights and privacy rights organisations, Airbnb launched this groundbreaking project to measure and fight bias and discrimination. Using tech to collect the data needed to measure and evaluate discrimination on its platform in the US so it can take additional action against it. Central to social change, is not just talking about the problems, but as my guest African feminist and activist Jessica Horn said in season one, it's about identifying the problem, then doing the work to change it. And also, she said, having the humility to acknowledge that you don't have all the answers. 
And I think Airbnb have recognised that by seeking out people who understand racism and its impact. And secondly, acknowledging that their contribution is a small part of a much needed wider whole. As Colour of Change President Rashad Robinson said, I quote, Silicon Valley has a long way to go to constructively engage with civil rights groups by proactively, not reactively, seeking out our expertise to build platforms that serve black people instead of harming us. Airbnb is setting an important precedent by taking measurable steps to examine and dismantle discriminatory online systems. We will continue to urge Airbnb to thoughtfully engage members of our communities in developing solutions to support long-time black residents at risk of displacement from their neighbourhoods. To find out more, you can type in Measuring Discrimination on the Airbnb platform or click the link in the podcast blurb. So interesting. It, it, it's very interesting also because, you know, the more you understand how slavery functions, you really understand that it's about power, it's it's an economic tool. I was actually, um, obviously, in preparation of, um, for this interview, looking at Peter Fryer's book. And, you know, just a lot of people don't realise there were actually black people in Britain in the 1500s, <laughs> Tudors and all of that stuff. But just the fact, because slavery was so profitable, there was just so much money to be made. So we have the, the end of slavery has been, you know, enacted. But uh, planters, we'll call them West Indians, need to be um, recompensed for all this money that they have lost. And I think it was in the the amount of twenty million pounds back then, which works out about three hundred and forty billion pounds now. Am I um, correct? If as as a proportion of government expenditure that year, it was about forty percent. Um, and mm-hmm. in, during the, the fiscal year when I was writing this, forty percent of government expenditure was three hundred forty billion pounds. I mean, oh, oh, that may be a slightly inflated figure because, of course, we have a much larger state now. Um, you know, there is not a welfare system. Uh, there is not an NHS. There are no Trident missiles. Um, but yes. still, twenty million pounds in eighteen thirty-three is an almost unthinkably large figure to spend uh, on one specific piece of legislation. Um, and th- th- there's, there's been this age-old debate about um, whether slavery was abolished and the slave trade was abolished um, because it was no longer profitable. Um, mm. That's Eric Williams's great thesis from Capitalism and Slavery mm. from the 1940s. Mm. I, I think most historians now agree that this simply wasn't the case. Um, mm. and, and the compensation figure is great, not only because, is so great, not only because you know, it, was, it was profitable, um, it was perhaps less profitable than it was, uh, but this was what Seymour Drescher is called an econocide. Um, and the 20 million was supposed to represent uh, the expected loss of profit. Uh, not only the confiscation of right. property, but also the expected loss of profit. Because the whole thing mm-hmm. holding together the pro-slavery thesis and the pro-slavery campaign was the idea, the racist idea, that mm. Africans, once freed, would not work for wages. Uh, there was this hierarchy of civilization, which I mentioned earlier, uh, and the people at yeah. the top of that hierarchy uh, were supposed to be infused with what uh, contemporaries called artificial wants. And these, we basically call them consumer desires. So the more civilized mm-hmm. you were, uh, the more refined goods and fineries that you'd want to buy. And if you wanted to buy them, then the harder you would work for wages. 
And the pro-slave lobby believed that, well, if the Africans are uncivilized, then if we free them, they won't have these demands for consumer goods. Therefore, they simply will not work. Um, and you know, as, uh, as the certain people in the colonial office recognized, if the West Indian slaveholders thought that free labor would be profitable, there would be no mm. reason for slavery. Um, yeah, yeah. But simply because they, they thought that free labor would have been impossible in the Caribbean, uh, would have been impossible with freed Africans. That was the whole reason for resisting abolition. Mm, gosh. I, I, I want to sort of segue this into the question of reparations. And, and here's why. Um, usually, you know, when we're talking about slavery, people are like, but it happened so long ago. Um, you know, can't, I mean, when Cameron was in the Caribbean and was it 2014, 25, uh, 2014, and they were talking and CARICOM, the Caribbean community was set up and they were saying, you know, look, this was, we're really, you know, this is terrible. We know it's terrible, but let's move on. But at the same time, I, I want to read this because I think it, something that you've written here that is better than me saying it. So this is the Foreign Office in 2014. We do not see reparations as the answer. Instead, we should concentrate on identifying ways forward with a focus on the shared global challenges that face our countries in the 21st century. We regret and condemn the iniquities of the history, historic slave trade, but these shameful acts activities belong to the past. Governments today cannot take responsibility for what happened over 200 years ago. At the time that this is being said, the Foreign Office is still repaying loans. Or the, yes, the, or the Treasury, um, yes. yeah, yeah. Treasury, sorry, yeah, sorry, yeah, thank you for clarifying. The Treasury is still repaying loans from 1830-whatever, mm -hmm. and we, the taxpayer, we didn't finish paying that off until 2015, and someone put uh, perfectly so well, and for me it's the hypocrisy of it all, it was not lost on several readers that the British government had effectively invited Black Britons to celebrate, quote, paying taxes to compensate those who enslaved their ancestors. And I think, so when we talk about, oh, but it was so long ago, but we're still paying for something that was so long ago, I, I'd love for you to delve into and sort of expound a bit more on that. Well, certainly the very fact that we were paying off um, those debts until um, 2015 uh, rubbishes mm. the idea that this is just something that happened in the past. Um, exactly. And there is, there is a question, and this, you know, is, is a double-edged sword, but where do you draw the line? Um, the, the, the British government of the last decade was... Um, held responsible and made compensatory payments to victims of the Mau Mau um, in yes. Kenya in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, the German government uh, of recent decades has made considerable payments uh, to uh, survivors uh, and descendants of victims of the Holocaust. Um, A billion dollars, according yeah, to this. Um, and, you know, the same has been true. Um, for uh, you know, the Aboriginal peoples of uh, of Tasmania, um, mm. <laughs> of course. Well, so, so, so the, you know, those few examples w would prove, I hope, that there are grounds for doing this. Um, you know, I'm not sure there are legal grounds, or there there's a strong legal case um, for reparations from the British government to the descendants of enslaved people or to Caribbean countries, simply because everything was legal at the time. Yes, exactly. Um, but there is an, I, what I, I think an unarguable moral imperative uh, to make amends for what was done. Because um, 
what, Car- what, the, what the Caribbean Commission has done is drawn uh, quite a persuasive um, connection of cause and effect between what happened to the West Indian colonies and what happened to the people who were trafficked there uh, and who lived mm-hmm. there um, and mm-hmm. the current problems faced by that region. Um, mm-hmm. And so, for example, there is one of the highest incidences of type 2 diabetes in the world in the West Indies. Mm-hmm. Is that an effect of having a diet in which sugarcane was one of the staple crops for 200 years? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Is there a lack of technological and industrial development in the West Indies because uh, of navigation laws, which uh, prevented uh, the West Indian colonies from developing their own um, industrial infrastructure, uh, which uh, insisted uh, that West Indian colonists uh, and the West Indian colonies should import their manufacturers from Britain to guarantee an export market for British manufacturers. Um, is the fact that the Caribbean suffers from higher levels of illiteracy than, say, Britain does, uh, a product of the fact that simply there was no educational uh, infrastructure, no educational system put in place uh, by the British government, by the British colonial government, which we must remember was also there in many cases until the 1960s. Um, there is absolutely like no question that the victims of slavery, the enslaved Africans in um the Caribbean did not emerge into you know, an equal station in British society whenever the apprenticeship system was ended in 1838. They became subjects of the British Empire. Um, you know, there, there was the same violence and rapacity and exploitation and inequality that was suffered by millions of people everywhere else in the world. Uh, and if the Caribbean Commission and if historians and if uh, you know, legal analysts can draw cause and effect between enslavement and the problems suffered by the Caribbean today, then I think there is a moral imperative on the British people and the British government to help um, remedy those problems. Yeah. And and I think it's also important to say that when they're talking about reparations, they're not talking about give us back the money that you, Britain, made off the backs of slaves. You know, I think academic uh, Robert Beckford said that he estimated it at about £7.5 trillion. But rather what they're trying to do is redress an injustice. And even this idea of clearing, you know, economic injustice, so forgiving the debts of former Mm -hmm. colonies, things like that. It's about redressing um, an imbalance, which I think is really important for people to understand because when people hear the word reparations, they... Often it seems that they just freak out. But this stuff has been really thought out. um, And actually what it is doing is actually a restorative thing. Yes. I mean, people immediately think of reparations in financial terms. And as you you point out, any reasonable calculation of what the wages would have been uh, of the millions of enslaved Africans in the Caribbean over hundreds of years... if it could be calculated, you know, it's not incalculable if it could be calculated, but it just, it could not be paid. It would be, you know, adding interest to it as well. I mean, there was, there is no way that Britain could ever afford to pay that money. Um, and yeah. there would be absolutely no way politically for that kind of reparation uh, to be made. Yeah. Um, but the Caribbean Commission has identified several like, reasonable practicable ways in which there could be a sense of restorative justice um, that could go a long way to make amends for the historical atrocities that were perpetrated in the Caribbean.
think also we have to talk about the fact that so many of our institutions now have thrived and or exist because of the British slave trade. We have accounting firms, insurance companies, banks, some universities. Um, I suppose I'm, I'm just thinking in, in terms of how we do move forward, because I think moving forward is important. I think we look back to understand it creates context. What do you think? How do we move forward knowing that all these institutions have been created? Like, I think, was it Oxford that created a, a fund for Caribbean students or was it Cambridge? I can't remember which one. Well, I, I, I think it might Glasgow, have been Glasgow. Glasgow has um, was a you know, city whose whose mercantile wealth was rooted in uh, first the American colonies and then in the Caribbean, especially with Demerara. Um, but I think the first uh, tracing the money that might have gone from either profits of slavery or compensation into these companies, it, it you know uh, the forensic analysis required to work out where that money ends up would be truly enormous. I'm, I, I'm not entirely sure it could be done. Um, and I do wonder, you know, the, the, you know, the rejoinder to that kind of argument anyway is, well, is somebody in 2010 who's, um, you know, an individual person in 2010 whose um, great-great-great-great-grandfather might have held slaves uh, and has benefited yes. indirectly or, or directly from that money all the way down, um, are they liable to repay this money? Um, yes, that's a difficult argument to make. I, I, in terms of you know, what we do, the first thing is that we have all of these these institutions should apologise. Britain itself should apologise because I, I, I think one of Britain's great problems with historical literacy is that we have really failed to recognise that before abolition, which we celebrate. Uh, and which we regard as a form of entire and total absolution for whatever um, you know atrocities there might have been beforehand, is that there were several hundred years of slaveholding, of slave trading. We were the world's most dominant, most profitable, and most powerful uh, slaveholding empire. Um, and even whenever there was abolitionism, there was still decades, and in you know, particular this one decade, uh, of fierce resistance to the idea. Of abolition, it, abolition was not a fait accompli. It, you know, the idea that uh, Britain rode to the rescue of enslaved Africans on a wave of uh, uh, Christian piety and a sense of uh, liberty and justice is just bogus nonsense. It didn't happen like that. Um, so I think we do need to apologise because not only the institutions who profited, the you know maybe. Um, so the, the companies, but you know, certainly Parliament, certainly uh, the government should apologise because it recognises that the story of slavery and abolition is not just about abolition, and it, and it always has been in the in the British popular imagination. Um, and to say that we need to redress the imbalance of popular perceptions of these histories by foregrounding slaveholding in the defence of slavery is not an attempt to to you know to run down Britain or to hate Britain, which I've been accused of by doing. Um, for one thing, it's just because it's true. I mean, the role of historians should be to bring to light historical truths. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, maybe, maybe that's a bit naively absolutely, absolute absolutely. Uh, in, you know, in, in approaching the subject. But what else is the point of it? You know, this is all relatively new material in the story that hasn't been told before. Um, and recognising it as fact and recognising Britain's complicity in this, um, you, know, you know, arguably one of the... the the, 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 well, I'm struggling with many greater atrocities uh, in history, mm. um, would just go a long way to restoring a bit of 
credibility in the way that Britons of the present day address their past. It cannot just be a celebration. Uh, there has to be a recognition uh, of, of what really happened. Mm, yeah, and I, I mean, I think we need to, I was listening to Sir Hilary Beckles talking about it. I think we need to acknowledge it was a genocide. And <laughs> just, you know, yeah, acknowledge what things are, you know? Well, yes, and, and, and it's... The rejoinder, which I've heard quite often to that is, oh, but we didn't go out of our way to deliberately kill people. Well, right. that's, I, I, I struggle with that um, because mm. several million people um, were trafficked, were enslaved, um, were worked to their deaths. Um, would those several million people have died in the way that they did at, at the age that they did if it were not for the institution of British colonial slavery and slave trading? Absolutely not. These, in, these institutions, British commercial practice and British political guardianship of that practice directly led to the deaths of those several million people. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I always ask my guests this question, um, what thing have you learned that we can learn from? But but in the context of this book, especially as you, you shared how you started, you didn't think you were going to end up here. You were looking at things from an evangelical place and you're, you know, with respect to theology and you end up in this place. What have you learned in this journey that you think listeners can take away? I'm not entirely sure, but maybe the most useful lesson was one that I learned last summer when I was writing the epilogue. Um, because I had, I, I had thought I had been of the opinion that statues of slaveholders or people who were deeply implicated in the defense of slavery should remain in place and that their names should remain on buildings because um, I thought that by keeping those names and those statues in place, uh, they would serve as a reminder uh, of the truth or, you know, a, you know, a form of representation of what happened in British history. Um, but whenever Edward Colson's statue was dumped rather poetically into the same, you know, the harbour from which his slave ships once set sail. Uh, yes, this is Bristol. It, yes, it, it, in Bristol. And, and whenever um, the right-wing media in Britain really exploded uh, in a frenzy of you know, frothy fury about uh, what had gone on, it did really bring home to me that there just simply isn't the ground base level of knowledge about the British Empire. Um, these aspects of British imperialism are not necessarily in curricula. Um, and this maybe brings us back to what we said at the start. I mean, I've always been slightly hesitant about decolonizing the curriculum, uh, or, or at least the phrase, what might end up, you know, effect, I might actually be advocating for it <laughs> without knowing it. Um, mm -hmm. But I think, you know, what, what I did learn is that taking down a statue isn't an act of vandalism. Um, it's actually a means of saying that once the communities which erected these statues um, thought that the acts and the deeds and the values represented by these men were something to celebrate. Uh, taking down a statue does not erase history. It does not delete these figures. It does not cancel them. Uh, it merely says that communities today do not wish to share the values and the deeds and the actions and to celebrate them, uh, to, to celebrate what these statues represent, what these men represented. Um, that's maybe the, the best and most reassuring thing that I've learned. Um, not Maybe not reassuring, perhaps it's the most troubling thing I've learned. Um, <laughs> But it does, it begs the question of how and why we're going to achieve some kind of reasoned and reasonable debate um, when we, we appear to be bounded by 
a pretty tempestuous culture war. Uh, and perhaps, and yes. perhaps I'm an active and knowing participant in this culture war. Um, I didn't regard myself as such when I was writing this book. I thought I was writing a history book. It's simply that, um, you know, events have happened uh, and this book has arrived at you know, perhaps the right time, perhaps the wrong time. Uh, but I hope we might begin to think about our history a little bit differently because of it. I agree. And I think, you know, in response to what you said, I'd love to say two things. One that, you know, I was raised to read widely. And I think when we talk about decolonizing, well, in my in my view, when we talk about decolonizing history, it's not, it's presenting all the options available. And to teach people when it comes to education, surely we want people, we hope that people are critical thinkers. So you should be able to see, um, read one piece of information against another piece of information and hold it up against each other and be okay with it being challenged. And I feel that it shows a real sort of weakness, if you like, if you can't have somebody challenge what you already know without suddenly you having an one having an existential crisis about who you are as a person or as a nation. I think we have to be able to look and say, you know, history isn't linear. Two things or more can be true at the same time. And and and, and what I hope the book has done is to is to show that there was moral ambivalence about something, you know, something, something that we regard as being an, an, an absolute evil, um, you know, in, enslavement at his, was not regarded in those terms. Um, you know, some abolitionists certainly regarded it as entirely evil, and uh, some defenders of slavery regarded it as an absolute good or as a positive good in the phrase of, you know, John Calhoun. Um, but for the vast majority of Britons, whether reading or reading or writing in the in the periodicals or reading the periodicals or debating these issues in Parliament or in Cabinet, they were fairly ambivalent about it. They had to be persuaded. Um, and I think bringing this these histories of slavery and abolition um, out of a binary culture war of good and evil into mm. a world of of grey men and grey opinions. Um, where there was argument and there was persuasion um, is one of the most important things because it, it, it again returns to the idea that you know the abolition of slavery was not a fait accompli. It was not always going to happen. It was something that the people argued about and fought over and thought very carefully about. Uh, and the fact that we had to go through this often quite violent, often quite troubling process doesn't necessarily fit with the national mythology uh, of Britain the Liberator, but unfortunately it is true. And and I think, you know, in terms of what, what I hear, even in what you're saying about things not being a fait accompli, is that we assume a lot of things even now are just going to be fine, but it requires, you know, a lot of work to keep things from, from not shifting and changing. Things aren't just assumed that, you know, will always be like this. It's not actually true, you know? No, it requires a lot of hard work, a lot of sacrifice, in some cases, blood being spilled. Um, I don't, I'm not advocating for that, but it's simply an historical fact that without the deaths of yeah. um, you know, thousands of rebels in Demerara and Jamaica, um, abolition wouldn't have happened when it did. Um, to end on a lighter note, um, this I'm a musician, so I always ask all of my guests, what music are you listening to? <laughs> so, um, 
And, and this is where I try to come up with um, something that's critically acceptable, uh, so I don't look like a complete <laughs> fool. Um, the, the, the circumstances of the last year have uh, sort of directed uh, what I've been listening to musically. So in um, in long days and nights uh, spent alone, uh, especially in winter, I find myself listening on loop to The Cure, <laughs> which is uh, sort of conveyed a, uh, I, I, you know, and the eight or nine minute, you know, uh, symphonic. The, the you know the dark symphonies especially that can convey the adequate sense of you know dislocation. Um, I've also <laughs> it, it been I, I I always listen to music whenever I'm working, uh, but whenever I am working, mm. it needs to be something that's really familiar, so I'm not caught out by the lyrics or find myself listening to the lyrics um, or classical right. stuff. So uh, in terms of um, classical music, inevitably as an historian in the 19th century, I end up listening to Beethoven or Verdi, um, or if I if, if I need. I have something just to have on, you know, old stuff like uh, Spring Scene or Jackson Brown, um, or certainly, and I've <laughs> lots of that. I think the more melancholy, the melancholy cuts from the albums of REM have uh, sort of fitted my mood over 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 the last year <laughs> of lockdown. Um, but no, no, music's been. Uh, I, I've always worked to. I think I always will. Uh, it's been very necessary. I just need to make sure I don't end up um, putting the lyrics into what I write. <laughs> um, Dr. Michael Taylor, I have. Thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, I cannot stress to people enough that they need to go and read this book. It is required reading. Thank you for taking your time. I know you've just started your sabbatical, so I hope you're going to be doing fun things. So, so do I. I, I that's just very, very kind of you to have me on the show. Uh, I also had my, I've just had my second jab today uh, for the vaccine. So uh, hopefully I made sense and I haven't yet um, wandered into a state of delirium. <laughs> no, not at all. It's been excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much to Dr. Michael Taylor. As I said at the start, this book is, I believe, required reading. It's a comprehensive book, and so it was difficult to cover everything in an hour's conversation. So I thoroughly recommend buying the book wherever you buy your books and follow Michael on Twitter. Thank you for listening. Holding Up the Ladder is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Please share, like, subscribe to the podcast, leave comments. We also want to hear from you about any initiatives, individuals or organisations you know of that are using the arts and creativity to champion social change. You can DM us on Twitter at HUTL underscore or Instagram holding up the ladder hashtag HUTL or email us at contacthutl at gmail.com. Thank you again to our sponsors Airbnb. To learn more about the work they're doing and why they're supporting Holding Up the Ladder, head to the links in the podcast blurb. Next week, we end our three-part mini-series with an extremely special guest. You know I love hyperbole. The person who is the reason I am who I am. She's brilliant. And she also happens to be my mother, sociologist Dr. Lima Bonick. We talk about the exception as if it's a rule. Mm -hmm. And we know that it isn't mm -hmm. because we know that working class children, white or black, mm -hmm. are still at the margins of the professions. They still live in the worst housing. Um, you know, they, they, they don't access the cultural institutions that exist for for everybody because they haven't been inducted with the kinds of um cultural predisposition to engage with those those institutions and so for example now they're saying that you know white working class boys are even doing worse than caribbean kids mm -hmm. and i think it's very easy for people to 
ignore class mm -hmm. as if to say class is in your just in your head and it's not a, 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 a material relation and if you think back on the during this pandemic how many children living in poverty didn't have computers to work mm -hmm. from they were three four kids trying to use their parents phone to access work mm. as the, the, the school provides um is that going to come up in the statistics when them and other minority mm. kids mm -hmm. children you know will it come up in the statistics to say that that was the reason yeah. or will their families be blamed for saying that they don't have the right culture to uh, engage with um, education Until next time.